0: Hey Sopranos Podcast fans, thank you so much for joining us once again every other Sunday for your heaping portion of Audio Sunday Dinner. We're so glad to be with you today. If you're listening to this on the initial release day, happy Easter, happy holidays, happy spring to all of you out there. Happy end of Passover, whatever it is you celebrate, we're glad to have you with us. I just wanted to let you know that your favorite Sopranos Podcast is on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're at the Sopranos Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and we're at Sopranos Podcast, no the, on Twitter. We got a great community of people out there. In particular, I want to just extend a little thank you to Ron Bernard over at Sopranos Autopsy for uh, amplifying us and giving us a retweet. That was very nice. Thank you, Ron. He has a great website, SopranosAutopsy.com, where he breaks down every episode in text format. Very informative, a lot of great uh, insight there. So thank you, Ron and uh yeah so come join our community come join the conversation hit us up at any of these platforms we're very accessible most importantly smash that subscribe button and leave us a five star review can't stress that enough very important that really helps our visibility folks and it helps bring more people to our podcast and more people to the sopranos conversation so whatever platform you're listening to your podcasts on slap that subscribe button slap that five stars or i'll come out there and i'll slap you that's not a threat that's a promise you know what else is a promise you're gonna love this next fucking episode so sit back relax and enjoy hey sopranos podcast fans we are back for season two episode seven the big nothing it's all a big nothing What makes you think you're so special? That quote is from the lovely, vibrant Livia Soprano in this season two, episode seven of The Sopranos, D-Girl, written by Todd Kessler and directed by Alan Coulter. Got a couple things going on here. Chris is getting into the movie business. AJ has stumbled onto existentialism and Big Pussy is being pressured harder and harder by his FBI overlords. We're going to get into it today. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. D-Girl! This is a... I'm smiling. You can tell that I'm smiling through the microphone because I love this episode. So do I. It's a Christopher episode. He's a favorite of mine. Season 2 is, in my opinion, cements Christopher as one of the great characters of the show. For sure. He's great in Season 1, but Season 2 is really when he kind of steps into his own. And... This is a great Chris episode, it's a Chris exploring Hollywood episode, it's a gangster exploring things that are a higher artistic pursuits episode, and there's also a lot of other great stuff going on. But let's do what we do, go around here and give initial thoughts on D-Girl.
1: This is one of my favorite episodes of the series, so I was always very excited to, to come back and, and revisit it. Part of that actually just comes from that I think when I first saw this episode I had a big old crush right away on Alicia Witt, who plays Amy Sarah in the she, episode. She's beautiful. She's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think I saw her in the same way Chris saw her. I was like, oh my God, look at this. And that's not to say anything against Adriana. Adriana is a beautiful, beautiful woman, but she was so different. And of course, that casting and that character design is, is very intentional. I will say on the rewatch for me, and my initial thought, I knew what was going to be today. I, just, I forgot how bleak this episode is. Uh, even the Hollywood exploration bit, which is so much fun. It's got so many great cameos, but I was like wow, this episode really mines itself for this sense of dread that that hangs over everything and leaves you with this feeling of nothingness everywhere you turn in this episode. Even the fun Hollywood stuff
2: Mm -hmm. kind of just leaves nothing in the room.
1: So that's my initial thought, yeah.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, I felt similarly about this episode. I've generally always liked it, and I think I've mostly considered it a comedy in watching it over the years. This time I had a still very, very funny episode, of course, but I similarly had a bleak feeling the absurdity fed into these lives that, again, I think these characters are trying to ascribe meaning to. It's hard, and they're faced with these betrayals, and uh, another portion of Livia's admonishment of AJ in that scene is people let you down, and that's a big theme here. This episode is essentially about the two prodigal son figures, Christopher and AJ, respectively. They both find a new toy, and it's them trying to work out the meaning in their life with it. And there's not a lot of good answers. Uh, it's, it's very fun to watch in that way. Both AJ and Chris are actually both very funny. Mm -hmm. in their own way in this episode. It's also interesting to see an episode where Tony doesn't have as much screen time. Not only does he not have as much screen time, but all of his diminished scene work is on the domestic front, Mm -hmm. where he's having a lot of trouble even communicating with his son. So because of that, I think it makes for a very different episode. The series' most openly philosophical episode up to this point, with, as Jordan said, a lot of bleak elements, but again, another really funny episode.
0: Well, that's just it. You know, AJ says... Quotes, uh, uh, niche as he calls him, uh, you know, uh, and all these uh, philosophers, but he says death just shows the ultimate absurdity of life, and yeah, this isn't abs- There's a lot of absurd, funny elements in this episode. The genre absurdism in theater and in art is one that is often very funny. You watch an absurdist piece and you laugh, but you also leave kind of feeling empty and weird about life. This word
1: absurd is also constantly used by Amy to describe Chris's behavior, to describe the situation. She uses the word absurd uh, very fluidly. Uh, So I I think that's intentional as well.
0: So to that end, it's great that an episode which had me laughing for 45 minutes really socks you in the fucking gut in the last eight or ten. And I like that. I like that I was laughing, laughing, laughing. You're along for the ride, and then it's like, oh, this is absurd. Everything is awful, and <laughs> none of it's going anywhere good. So that's what I took away from it, and I really liked it. Uh, the Girl is a lot of fun. A lot of humor here, too. The, the, everyone involved had a sense of humor about themselves. We're going to talk about uh, <laughs> John Favreau. I love that he not only signed off on this, but embraced this. It's just very good let's talk about aj first the episode starts with aj and we see him driving a bunch of what have to be what 13 12 year olds mm, yeah <laughs> and he crashes and we get the shot of the broken mirror and then we uh, the next scene we see with aj after some more christopher stuff is him being you know interrogated for lack of a better word by his parents and that scene is uh Something else. Let's talk about AJ's journey here and what uh, we make of these first couple moments with him, the the car, that very funny shot of Carmela turning on the car in the <laughs> in the in the garage and then just looking up as the mirror. And then AJ's sitting there getting grilled by Tony and Carmella. Very funny scene. The whole family. Meadow comes in and adds to it.
1: I actually want to point out that I think even though AJ is definitely wrestling with something that is bothering him, he's also done a nice little bit of manipulation here of his parents. He doesn't really get in trouble. Not really for damaging the car in that way. Um, at least not in a way that is impressed upon to the audience. Like, he never says to us, hey, I've lost my allowance for three months, or I'm grounded, or anything. He kind of sidesteps really talking about the car by talking about existence. And they don't know how to deal with that. Carmella's response, you know, why, to why are we here is, well, we're here because of Adam and Eve.
0: Yeah, they are just absolutely know, not ready for this they, at all. They are
1: ill-equipped to handle that kind of a question. But... And A.J. also has very blunt tools to be able to explore that, right? He's a young man. He's only like 12 or 13 years old, right? Um, his study of philosophy is extraordinarily limited. It's just based on the book The Stranger that's been introduced into his English class curriculum by his um, professor-turned-teacher, uh, English teacher at this moment. And, uh, yeah, maybe he is starting to ask some big questions, but it kind of comes up sort of conveniently. I thought that mm. was an interesting dodge. It reminded me a bit of one of tricks,
2: maybe. hmm yeah, the uh, the first scene is nice, too, because it's very brief. It's gets us right into the action. And I think another car is coming down the street, and AJ swipes Carmela's car into a, uh, looks like a... Landscaping truck. Landscaping truck, right. And uh, so it scratches up the side of the car, busts the... Uh, and th- one of the friends says, why did you freak out? And AJ just stands there. It actually seemed to me like a suggestion that his malaise could be like his dad's because Tony also crashed a car earlier in the season. Mm. Then there's this scene at home, which is just great. The first the first line in the scene is, you stole my car, where is the trust in this house? So <laughs> where we go from here is anybody's guess. And yeah, I, mean, I hadn't thought of the manipulation angle, but it's true and it's very clear, and I think what's important that the parents, particularly Tony, doesn't know how to handle this. And... At least with respect to Tony himself, it's not precisely about AJ or even the car, as Tony later says, boys will be boys, can't put shit back in the donkey. The attitude gives Tony pause, and I think it's pretty clear that at least in part, Tony is wrestling with the fact that he has a similar outlook, and we know where it comes from, which is going to bring us back to Libya. Mm -hmm. A lot of great lines in this scene,
0: boredom, suffering, you know... (laughs) Go upstairs and do your math. Well, that's the most boring. Your other choice is suffering. You want to start now. Uh, Tony made me laugh again. Well, where was this man last year when we had to pick you up from camp for bedwetting? That was the year before. <laughs> so funny. AJ's great here, and I think he does a good job. You know, is he manipulating, or is this something that he is really wrestling with? I don't know. I do know that I I, I believe that AJ has to enjoy, on some level, getting one on getting Carmela and Tony kind of perplexed here. Because he's very rarely, if ever, going to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. And he's dropping something on Tony and Carmela here that they are just not prepared for. I don't think Tony and Carmella were given the stranger at any level of their uh, education. <laughs> oh, certainly not. <laughs> uh, I think AJ, like Meadow, has picked
1: up abilities to deceive and manipulate uh, just from observing his parents. We get so many shots in the show. We've talked about this a lot of just the kids in the periphery hearing their parents' conversations, hearing the way they talk to each other. So I, I think this is part of that. But I don't want to delegitimize uh, AJ's struggles with existence. I think they are real, mm. and we this is not the first time we've seen early-onset depression from AJ. You know, he he has problems. He it has, has you know, issues. It, um, So I don't, I don't want to delegitimize that, but I think he's using them to press his advantage here.
0: I think it happens for everybody at a different point in life. It just matters on what your life circumstance is and what who you are obviously it comes early for aj in this family uh you know it happened for me a little bit later that moment you just kind of look around at the world and you've been brought up by your parents or whoever brought you up and um you kind of i don't know i, I remember a moment in my late high school early college that era where i just remember looking at the world and thinking my god nobody's in control of any of this yeah uh, You know, my parents did a good job, but, like, they're not in any more control or understanding of the mysteries of the universe than I am. And that's a dreadful realization, particularly in the household of The Sopranos, when, you know, as uh, Melfi tells Tony in the next scene that we're going to talk about, even motherhood is up for debate. There are no absolute truths. Yeah. So let's talk about that Melfi scene. It's a great scene. Uh, Melfi, this is, like, really the work happening in the therapy is really going on here. Between Tony and Melfi, we talked a little bit about Tony saying, you know, boys will be boys, but it's this other shit. And she starts grilling him a little bit on this when Tony says, my mother's dead to me. Mm-hmm. and She starts kind of grilling him on that, drawing some kind of correlation between the two. Anthony stumbled onto existentialism. Uh, what do we make of this bringing Livia into the situation? I think Melfi's obviously kind of right on the money here. Yeah, there's kind of an interesting archetypical
1: parallel conversation going on in terms of how philosophy is concerned, because Nietzsche, famous for saying, Gott is Todd, right, God is dead. Uh, we can have the uh, almost like surrogate God character of like the mother God, right, in the Sopranos being like, well, my mother is dead to me. What is a world in which your mother is dead like? You know, then then who's in control of it all? What's it all for? Mm. You know, so I, I think Melfi is really kind of wise to pose this uh, unbalancing question at Tony and say, you know, well, how do you think your not acknowledging your mother's existence affects AJ in some way? And Tony kind of uh, almost acknowledges that, like, you know, he's made uncomfortable by that thought as well. It's not even something he's ready to explore.
0: Oh, he's there's so much avoidance going on there. Tony yeah. does not. Want to go there. Anytime she brings up Livia, he clams up physically. He kind of, like, tenses up, sits back. He
2: wants very little to do with this discussion. He immediately becomes defensive when the discussion, not by Melfi's design, but by his... I'd say by his inference, seems to suggest that this is his fault, right? Yeah. Oh, no, this is my fault. But that's not why you go to therapy. Yeah. Um, to, like, lash yourself. You go to therapy to explore what makes you do what you do and behave the way you do and think the way you do. And so this is all worth it, even though, I I mean, I don't think there's very much to AJ's literacy. AJ is a semi-literate kid who is doing what semi-literate people do, latching on to one thing that you've read about that has some power and some meaning. Because AJ is confused. He's young, he's looking for something. He's in this weird space, as he says in that original scene with Tony and Carmela I'm going to be confirmed and that means I'm a man in the eyes of the church anyway that means I'm a man he's a kid he doesn't know he doesn't get this stuff yet he's growing up like a lot of kids do in our time frame which is slowly i think he's still to use our phrase from last year a gray kid and he's still in this developmental pattern so again to bring it back to this bleak sensibility what made me feel bleak about it as a whole is that the cycle is sort of continuing through Tony, Livia, and AJ because of how in part Tony refuses to deal with it. There's a scene I think then after the therapy session where AJ and Tony are in the car. Yeah. That no god shit, that made your mother very upset. What happens in that scene is Tony tries to communicate with AJ, finds a frustration with it, short circuits, he gets angry, and AJ is left angry. Yeah. He he taps AJ in the face a little, little hey, wake up here, and AJ <laughs> bashes his hand into the the glass, and Tony just says, "Hey," and the, it, it's a, it is a funny scene, but yeah. it kind of made me feel sad for both of them. Yeah, there's no outlet, yeah. right? They're just angry, and I was like, "Oh man,"
0: you know. So, Mm-hmm. I want to come back to the a- AJ stuff in a second. Um, we're going to talk about Chris and the Hollywood stuff all in one big chunk, I think. But the pussy and the AJ storyline both intersect, so I want to kind of rewind a little bit talk about what we see, this first scene with Pussy in the episode. So Pussy is being grilled by Skip. And we also discover in this moment, which I thought was odd, that Pussy's house is either
1: right next to or right across the street from a cemetery.
0: Oh, it's overlooking a yeah, cemetery. Which, yeah, which, um,
1: I don't know, I guess we could look for symbolism, metaphor, etc. there, which I think is kind of clear, but, uh, you know, more than that, it was just like, Wow, I guess there's really only enough glamour for Tony to live glamorously. Everybody else in his life seems to live in kind of a not-so-great place, at least as far as we've seen. Have we been impressed by anyone else's home that we've seen on this show really? i haven't no, no. You know.
0: uh you know the kuzumano's maybe who live next door. oh right but i mean in but, in like, tony's the mafia family right absolutely not so Junior,
1: junior's house is
0: a normal basically house like mine it's, yeah it's junior's
1: a, house is a normal house we saw mikey Palmisi's house in season one it was a yep. normal house christopher and adriano live in i would say even kind of a slummy apartment not yep. even a nice place so i was like wow i guess this lifestyle only really affords the top guy to have like a nice place to live hmm that's an interesting note. There, uh, but I'm sorry like, to uh, derail the conversation.
0: No, sorry. no, it's not a derailment. It's a cool observation. Yeah, I was just like, wow. You're like, yes, like, he's overlooking the cemetery, but it's like that's not a good property value. Yeah, you know? no, and like even just like the way his like little backyard looks,
1: and you see his wife down there. I'm like, this is a, a little. It's not very nice, you know. You think for all mm. if you're selling your fucking soul to to live a mob life, you at least hope for a nicer house.
0: Mm. Skip confronts Pussy with a story that has made the news. Uh, this guy Wise Chuck from philadelphia has been blown up in his car they kind of go back and forth yeah the philly overtures we get the sense that there's some tension between some wise guys in philly and jersey skip says we're not looking to pin this on your crew but what do you got for me the specifics of that really don't matter the point is and pussy calls this out to skip it's like you come bother me at my house in the morning because somebody's leaning on your ass we're getting the sense that the fbi is you know Pussy's. we we know that pussy's been skating Right, he's been lying to Skip. He's been no, I haven't even you know in the second episode of the season, he's like I haven't even gone to see Tony yet. Lie, he's leading them on. He's playing both sides, and we're getting the sense now that that's not going to fly. The FBI is putting a little bit more pressure on Pussy to show up at his house when he's still in a bathrobe in the morning, grilling him about something. You know, we don't. We've never met this Wise Chuck character. We're never going to hear about Philly mobsters again. But this is a body, so the FBI is putting a little more pressure on him. So that's where Pussy is when we get to this next scene with AJ and Pussy at the uh, auto body shop. Tony brings the car in, and uh, <laughs> a lot of, again, humor here. I love that he tells Pussy, you know, he's bombing out in school. You want to use the belt, too? He's bombing out in school. He's got a, th- a C, three Ds, and an F. And then uh, Pussy's like, AJ, how are you doing in school? Oh, I got a C, three Ds, and an F. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. AJ, you got to respect the value of things. He's bringing the car to Pussy to get it fixed. Uh, you know, thoughts on Tony bringing AJ to Uncle Pussy uh, for this problem? Is this the right uh, right it, way to go? That's just some irony because, like, you're bringing, you know, for, for anyone to have been, like, an
1: upstanding, you know, person in the community or, like, someone who's a, a paragon of Catholic values, uh, you know, Pussy's his godfather, but, like, what does that really mean to someone for whom... You know, loyalty, fidelity, honor, the other Catholic virtues seem to mean very little, yeah. uh, you know, ultimately. There's love there, that's so important, but a pussy is not a role model in any way.
0: The way Pussy talks to him, I don't know, gives, first of all, very funny moment where he says, you gotta learn to respect the value of things, and then gives him money, immediately. <laughs> right, Yeah. go get a, a, get a Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very Sopranos thing to do, that happens in the show all the time, where a character will... You know, lecture you on on something and then go take you. What, what was it last season, I think, when Carmella was like, the, how women are better savers than men, and then like, I'll take you out for a day of beauty on me. <laughs> You're going to do the whole spa thing, yeah. you know, spend hundreds of dollars right. on that. Carmella service. can't talk about saving at all. Right. So it's like, so it's another one of those fun moments of momentary
2: hypocrisy. Right. And uh, it also comes up, I think, importantly because of the emotional turmoil. Tony has known Big Pussy for years. They're not only associates, they're close friends. It This is really a family idea. He mm. says to him, you're the boy's godfather. But Tony and Big Pussy might as well be brothers. And he's going to this guy and saying, I don't know what to do. It's getting so I don't even want to be around AJ. Mm. It's, the kid used to be happy-go-lucky. Now he questions the universe. Hey, T, like father, like son. Huh? Right. Hey, asshole, I'm serious. Yeah. But Pussy's right.
0: So... He's so lovable. I, I, I remember watching the scene thinking, I wish Pussy was my uncle. Oh, yeah. It, 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 he's the he worst. Is lov- he he's is lovable, yeah. A, yeah. He's a rat. He's the worst
2: thing you could be in a mob show, but he's also, like, something so likable about him. We're going to get yeah. to this, too, but this is the, I mean, Big Pussy as a character in the show, I'm sure has been made for years. This episode, Vincent Pastor gets made mm-hmm. in that last scene with AJ. Oh, he yeah. is so good. Um, that's going to be great. Yeah, we'll talk about that.
0: So, then we get this fun scene with uh, the Bompinceros taking AJ out to, you know, batting range, just hanging out with him, spending some quality time with uh, his godson here. And uh, he gives him a very old school answer to this. You're doing what's right is your purpose. Kind of just giving him that old line that he's heard a million times. And uh, takes Pussy's son, Matt, who... Connects with him a little closer in age. They're Matt's older, obviously, but I like this moment. I like that Matt Bump and Sarah is kind of there to be like, dude, come on. Like you 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 you're just scratching the surface here. You know, AJ's just latching on to the latest thing he's thinking about or heard about, but there's a lot of different philosophies out there that AJ hasn't been exposed to. I like this conversation between Matt and AJ. I just think it's cool. Yeah,
1: Matt is trying to also broaden his outlook a little bit, like, Mm. oh, you're obsessed with, you know, Nietzsche right now, correct him instead of saying Nietzsche, the guy ended up fucking talking to his horse, you know, you need to look at, uh, Kierkegaard, Heidegger, right, the the other philosophers that had other things to say about why we're here, why existence is this, that,
2: or the other thing, Mm. you know. It's a fun scene, there's, there's great dialogue, it's also interesting to see, since we're talking about legacy and maybe absurdism, Tony, as we noted earlier, is the much more successful gangster But his kid's a mutt, kind of. And Pussy is the worst thing a gangster can be. He's a rat, and his son is singularly impressive. Mm. So it's a nice setup there, even though by the end of the episode, even that kid is going to get exposed to the terror and the hypocrisy of his family.
0: Mm. I also like that they remember these little character details. I love uh, Pussy just has a throwaway line. You know, your father, uh, baseball's part of your tradition. Your father was almost... um, all-county left field. But I'm not talking about that. You know, Junior's line in the pilot episode that we get is, uh, you know, Tony never had the makings of a varsity athlete. Junior told the girl cousins that, and I just <laughs> love that. You know, oh, he was close. He was almost all-county left field. So they remember that. I just like that. I like when they remember that Tony used to almost be an athlete and could have just... It's going to come into play in the series at a few points. So I just want to... I like that they keep reminding us of that. The next scene we get with AJ... <laughs> I mean, is there a worse person in the world to have sent this kid to? We get this yeah, shot of Olivia. Livia wide awake at, and then immediately chastising AJ. I was
2: sleeping. Yes.
1: <laughs> right. her, her just in a nutshell.
2: She doesn't even sit up to yell at him. She's prost- She is prostrate on the bed and he comes in. And she says, yeah, and I mean, it's so funny.
1: Another instance of food avoidance from Livia. She has a full plate of food that I actually thought looked pretty good for hospital food. Or yeah, Or yeah. for, sorry, uh, a nurse, whatever, you know. Yeah. Rest home food. I was like, I, I would eat that. I would eat those mashed potatoes at least. But, of course, she hasn't touched her food. Um, it, yeah, if you are having problems considering, like, why are we here? Why are any of us here? Existence of God, existence in general. Yeah, coming to Livia... Livia is a true nihilist. Yeah. Not flirting with nihilism, not nihilism for fashion. She actually delivers this line, which I wrote down because I thought it was one of the coldest, darkest things ever said on the show. And it was part of our poll quote, and it's how we got our title today, The Big Nothing. Livia says, don't expect happiness. People let you down. And I won't name any names, but in the end, you die in your own arms. It's all a big nothing. And that is the seed of this family, right? <laughs> this is the woman that raised Tony that was the matriarch of this family. And if AJ has been flirting with existentialism, suddenly here comes nihilism to fucking hit him over the head and realize like, oh shit, it really it could all be the cold black void at the end.
0: I, I cannot mean. think of perhaps a more despicable thing to tell
2: a 12-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's really awful. It also gives her energy. Talking nihilism. She starts off, again, laying back on the bed. She starts talking about how it's a big nothing, and by the end of the scene she has her appetite back. Oh yeah, she's She's saying, why
0: does everything have to have a
2: purpose? She sits up. That fires her up. Man. And this is going to keep the cycle of nihilism, certainly absurdity, and lostness going when they discover AJ smoking weed at his confirmation party. Um, They start yelling at him, and he... Brings up Livia's quote. That just makes them more angry. <laughs> so it just kind of makes things worse. It, in a lot of ways, this is a very
0: classic Livia scene. It's fucking funny. There's a lot of laugh lines. It's Livia. Really, at her most, Livia. But it's also very dark. And like you said, Jordan, there, there's um, she's just plumbing a depth of, of nihilism that is... Uh, the show will brush up against uh, from time to time, and here it is in all its glory. And it's between a grandmother and her grandson. Yeah, this is dark shit, but it's uh, it's a great scene. And uh, what she says really affects AJ. They like you know Robert Eiler, young actor at this point. He's in the best acting school possible as a cast member of this show, but. No, uh, does a nice job. Just I think he's deeply disturbed by what he hears. Sure, and remember,
1: he is sent there. He is sent there, according to him, because you know she's old and wise and stuff. Well, what has a person who has lived a whole life have to say about existence? That's it. It's all a big nothing.
0: Yikes! So the next beat in the Pussy AJ stories, uh, which are the B and C stories uh, in this in this episode, is this moment we see leading up to what's going to be AJ's confirmation party. And we get this scene that's just filmed in a really intense way just to grab you and, I think, kind of move it quickly. But the feds basically tell Pussy that they want him wired up for the confirmation. Yeah. Pussy is, like, very upset. What are you talking about? I'm the kid's sponsor. Skip says, who the fuck is sponsoring you? Getting tough. And this is a big deal. Pussy wearing a wire is not a little deal. So that's where we're going with that. Any thoughts on Pussy wearing a wire? And this next scene we get leading up to the party, by the way, very disturbing scene where Pussy is shaving his chest, getting ready. Uh, Angie wants to get in the bathroom. He throws the mirror at her. He's bleeding. He's shaking. And she gets the key. He's telling her, don't come in. He's getting set up to put this wire on himself. And he really loses it. We see him unraveling and Matt to the point where Matt has to come in and pull him off of her. This is a really disturbing, well done scene. But, um... This is a big moment in Pussy's life as a gangster and on this show. What do we make of this? Well, it's just another, you know, another scene that we get to see that,
1: you know, Pussy's whole life is unraveling. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all coming apart. Um, we are very aware from that scene, like, he can't hold this together much longer. We were getting the sense now that, yeah, he may have been playing both sides against the middle for a while, but this is not sustainable for much longer. And these kinds of outbursts are going to become more commonplace until it reaches a head, which um, it
2: will. Yes, I felt similarly like a lot of things were coming to a head here. Of course, we already know from this season there are difficulties in his marriage, to say the least. We know that he's been doing playing this game, sort of playing both sides against the middle with the feds and the mob. And I think Lapare, Agent Lapare, even in the first scene, begins to call him out on it or implies that that's what he's doing. We've seen guys drag their feet before. So now this is all coming together and which also means, as Jordan pointed out, the weight of his betrayal is going to become greater. And yeah, it's a tough scene. It's brutal. It is upsetting. Um, when he's grabbing at Angie, he's ready to give her a like a punch in the face, but he's yelling in her face, "I'll kill you." Um, and later in the episode, he tells AJ to go downstairs and enjoy your family. I mean, it's 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 brutal. Yeah. The way
0: this episode is structured, all of our storylines kind of converge at this confirmation party at the end. So I think what I want to do now is actually go back and talk about Christopher's journey through the episode. And then when we get back to this party again, we're going to talk about how it all culminates in Mm. the fucking Sakya right in the gut ending this episode had. Beautiful scene work all the way through, but particularly in the last 10 minutes But for now, we're going to lighten things up. It's gotten a bit dark around here, so we're going to have some fun. Uh, Let's let's go back to the top of the episode where Chris, uh, we get an establishing shot of New York City, and we're in a club. Chris, Adriana, and he's mentioned this character once before, I think in the pilot of season one, actually. He tells Tony, my cousin Gregory's girlfriend is what they call a development girl in Hollywood. And here we actually meet Chris's cousin, Gregory, and his beautiful fiance, as you mentioned, played by the beautiful Alicia Witt. And they're all just kind of having a night out at the club. And what do we make of these characters? We're meeting them for the first time. My first impression of Amy, the character Amy, is that uh, she's already full of shit. I picked that up. Right, like, she's just got this whole, like, Hollywood vibe. Oh, yeah, total friend, total friend. Yeah, Quentin, you know. Dry, horrifying. Yeah, yeah.
1: We uh, <laughs> will see this snowball, but, yeah, right from that first scene is the budding heads of the gangster world, which is a very real, concrete place where real things happen to real people and there are consequences for it. And this kind of, like, flaky nothing world of hollywood where like as soon as you grasp onto something you look in your hand and it's disappeared Mm. and people aren't where you need them to be and they don't answer the phone and they you know it's full of shit they're full of shit and the way (laughs) she talks is so hoity yeah and ivy league and bullshit that you're just like wow but wonderful casting wonderful performance she's so beautiful you do see herself through christopher's eyes Mm -hmm. And also, you feel bad for Adriana in this moment because everything Adriana says in the scene, every single thing Adriana says in the scene, Amy is very dismissive of. Right? Amy is dismissive of uh, any admiration for Vince Vaughn. Amy is dismissive of, of basically, um, you know, uh, Adriana mentioning Chris's screenplay specifically, and then Chris is also dismissive of that because he doesn't yeah. want to be like blown up for it right now. Um, well, so two Adri- episodes
0: ago, he just threw all this shit out. Right, know?
1: yeah. Adriana's uh, existence is so diminished in this scene, and that's purposeful because we're Chris is going to be stepping out.
2: Yeah. Uh, Chris is also not initially intrigued in this scene. Very important detail. Mm. Uh, no, I don't want to. He's, he's doing the laconic thing. He doesn't say much. He's doing the Gary Cooper thing. Amy likes that. She's intrigued by it. Oh, right she's away. into him immediately. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, as if that wasn't enough, then when he plays tough with the banker assholes, that's just forget it. I mean, oh she, yeah, she, that shot on her face is like she's giving him fuck me eyes immediately. She's loving it. Chris, <laughs> for his part, uh, Chris for his part, however, goes home and says to Adriana, "She looks like she's dressed like the fucking Adams family." <laughs> um, this is an important detail because, again, I think part of the absurdity of life—they, they're—they're going to believe in this episode that they have fallen in love. But they've fallen in love with the culture that the other represents. Mm. That's what it. Re- Chris Chris doesn't go to the Soho Grand looking for her. He goes to the Soho Grand looking for Jon Favreau, mm. and he's not there. And he goes to Amy's room, which is when they start smushing. When she starts talking about his screenplay. So th- this is all perfectly set up that this is the woman in some way that Adriano wants to be. Mm. Adriana wants to have the authority to name drop like that. Right. She wants to be able to buy Prada even if Chris doesn't think it looks sexy. Right. So, which unfortunately does foreshadow that Chris will step out on her. There's another
0: line in that scene that made me just go, oh, aid. Uh, she says Amy was, quote, so down to earth. Yet again, another example of Adriana the being a horrible of misjudge yeah. of character, talent, of, you know, any. She's just not. <laughs> she's she's so sweet but she's just not a judge of character I, I don't know how anyone would hang out with that woman for any length of time and think that she's quote down to earth that's the opposite of true <laughs> yeah so they have that scene a lot of great laugh lines swingers you could suck my dick that swings too <laughs> gets me every time the co- the cracks on swingers and the fact that i i mean it's just very clear we're going to talk about john favreau in just literally a second here but The fact that he is involved in this and has this sense of humor about himself, I got to give big props to Jon Favreau because Chris just rips on him and swingers in particular this entire episode and Favreau is involved. So I just love that. I love when actors appear as themselves in a show and have a sense of humor about themselves. Yeah, we
1: also have an interesting position here speaking about this episode 20 years later where Jon Favreau is the top of the a-list for directors in Hollywood right now and some of that has come from having a history of being easy to work with having a nice sense of humility Mm -hmm. uh not always taking himself seriously and it's landed himself in a really good position 20 years later yeah so seeing him in this episode was like an extra treat because I'm like wow this guy like controls Hollywood right now it's so cool to see him do this
0: Mm-hmm. and Aid suggests that he uh, goes to the movie set that Amy offered to take them to the set of whatever movie John's working on and, quote, slip him the script. She tells him that's what it's called, slip him the script. And No, well, he was slipping something. <laughs> oh, yeah. The next uh, scene we get is on set. Chris is immediately, the, the close-ups of his face, he's brought to this this film set, and I, I've been there where you get onto... Now, I mean, I haven't had my, quote, big break yet. I've worked on some stuff, but I've been uh, in some smaller roles on some sets with some people that just make me go wide-eyed and like, wow, this is amazing. So I've been where Chris is as a lover of movies and as an actor and as somebody who is, you know, trying to make a living in show business. I, I, I love these shots of Chris all wide-eyed. We talk a lot about these gangsters brushing up against uh, artistic endeavors and higher pursuits and I just love how starry-eyed and innocent Chris is in this first scene. He's just, like, really in it and absorbing it. He's loving what he sees. And um, they're shooting some kind of spy movie here. <laughs> A lot of great, funny stuff. Janine Garofalo is in the movie. Uh, Sandra mo- Bernhardt, yeah. 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 What was what?
2: <laughs> the silencers represent their voiceless place in society. <laughs> I was just, I was just <laughs> going to mention that line. Killed me. Very funny. So funny. funny. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of humor
0: here. And, uh, you know, Favreau thinks initially that Chris is this guy sent from uh, a magazine to talk about the place he likes to eat breakfast. And uh, she's like, this is the guy from Jersey. And Favreau's interest is like, oh, fuck, you know. And then they, they kind of connect, and Chris watches them get a take. We get the pukyak thing.
2: Let's talk about this scene. It's a perfect setup, by the way, the way they do it with Favreau, where initially he thinks that this is a guy for, like, what, a... Uh, an entertainment magazine, a food magazine, and maybe not trying to be rude, but Favreau is kind of being rude. He's looking at the monitor and half talking to him. When, oh, this is Christopher from Jersey. Oh oh. Yeah. So yeah. we see what respect it commands and how essentially these people are all celebrities to each other. Mm. They represent that world that the other wants to get into, get that access. Um, it's perfect. Chris falling this is what Chris falls in love with the life. As he says, I don't want to be an actor, I just want to be a player. I don't want to deal with all this other shit. It makes none of the demands on him that the acting class did. Mm -hmm. None of the emotional shit, none of the stuff where you have to dig. It's just, you get to be there, you get to live this life. In this scene, he gets to be a hero. Yeah. Because he comes up with this line. So it's a perfect (laughs) setup for what we're getting into.
1: Yeah, the the scene definitely highlights that Hollywood needs something from the real world to exist. Mm. You know, it's almost like they're almost all parasites. They're all leeches or vampires on Chris's authenticity. That scene is a much lesser scene using the word bitch. The actors acknowledge it. It feels wooden to them. They don't want to use that word. He comes out with means cunt. These, these characters are from an area. You know, they're from... These are characters from, what, Brooklyn? Right? Yeah. In this episode, yeah, right? Characters. So... He's like what? She's from Brooklyn. She would know this word, and that they they light on that. They 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 feel that 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 has this sense of the real, the authentic. Yeah. This is exactly what John wants because that's what he's, he's looking at doing a Gallo picture, right? He wants he wants some of Chris's authenticity in his world, and the viewer it's communicated to the viewer so well in that scene that like that's why Chris is here. We don't feel like he's totally fish out of water. We feel like he's the prize, right? They they mm-hmm. they do actually honestly care about him because in some way bullshit Hollywood needs something real to survive.
0: Absolutely. And I tell people who either want to be actors this, or when I talk to somebody who has like teenage kids or thinking about getting into the arts, I tell them like, I'm, I'm in my 30s. I've lived a little bit. I've seen some things. My philosophy on this, and to, it goes directly to what you were saying, Jordan, is the best thing an artist can do is have a life outside of the art. Very, very important. James Gandolfini, the lead in this series, didn't study acting in college. You know what I mean? So, like, to, to to any young actors who might be listening out there, if there are anyone out there, you know, you're going to get great training at a place like a, like an acting conservatory or if you want to just immerse yourself in your art, that's great, but you need to make time. I, I advocate for liberal arts education uh, if you're going to pursue the arts because you're going to get, you pull, as an artist, you just pull from everything else, so that goes exactly to what you're saying. You know, when you are doing a picture on something, you need to immerse yourself in what you're doing and if you're doing a mob picture you're going to hang out with wise guys you're going to talk to wise guys you're going to yeah. do research there so that's a very astute thing you said jordan and i agree with you agree wholeheartedly. well it's also as we've all acknowledged it's it is why
1: chris ultimately did so well in acting class right because mm. he pulled out real emotions sort of by accident yeah because chris comes from the real world he's a real person mm-hmm. uh this artifice doesn't come naturally to him yeah um and people are magnetized by it
0: So following this through, Chris takes Amy and uh, John on kind of like a little... We guess since they're going around Jersey, they get a little coconut slice together. What is that? Coke and a slice. A Coke and a slice. Jesus Christ, I'm an idiot. Yeah, no, no. A lot of people hear Coke Coke and a slice. I kept hearing coconut Coconut slice. Right, right. what is a coconut slice? Right. No, it's a slice of cheese pizza and a Coke. They probably have like a deal up... It's one of those places... How silly of me. (laughs) No, you're not... You're not the only one to make that mistake. The first time I heard, I was like, "What the fuck is a coconut slice?" So I, you well, know, the Jersey twang they say it coconut slice really fast. Yeah. It's probably a deal they have, like coconut slice dollar twenty-five, sure. whatever the fuck. Right. You know what I mean? Like uh, <laughs> coconut slice, coconut slice, coconut slice. And then they sit down. A lot of this dialogue just I laughed so hard through this whole scene. Uh, Favreau with the cursing and Amy looking at him like that's clearly not the way he talks, but Favreau's trying to jive with the gangster. I was just like, whatever you think of that fucking thing, man. You know, and she's looking at him I'm like, what the fuck? Uh, Chris, shitting on his movie. You got the line. He says, you guys kind of modeled yourselves after Frank and Dean, but there was like a pussy assness to it.
1: <laughs> Which by the way, Amy's fucking rolling in this scene, right? She doesn't want to show John Favreau how much she's enjoying what Chris is saying.
2: What what you guys have just laid out about what they need from Chris is interesting and it's also why I'm sure you guys noticed this. When Chris makes a fucking fool of himself at various times, they kind of paper it over because they want to keep themselves on good terms with him. Uh-huh. That like there's once in this scene where Chris gets so much street cred, telling them this cool story. At one point, he says in the scene, "I only want to be an actor if I can play myself," and you see both Amy and Jon Favreau like start to make a face, <laughs> and, but yep. they don't want it to read. And Favreau says. And that makes total sense. It's <laughs> yeah. really funny how they're trying with him. But yeah, and then in this scene he tells this story, which...
1: Uh, this story is unforgettable, by the way. Oh, yes. I've remembered <laughs> it almost word for word oh, yeah. for 20 years.
0: <laughs> it's a horrifying story. Horrifying story. story. And is uh, just, like, wrapped, and I love that moment when <laughs> Amy's like, oh, crying game. And John's like, this is a true story. <laughs> <laughs> Her face just drops. and the caval the cavalier nature with which Chris just tells this story um about a wise guy friend of his, you know, taking out a a quote, she male, uh, as he says later in the episode, and discovering a cock where he's expecting there not to be a cock and burning burning her with acid, her with yeah. acid after spotting her uh, outside of the uh, the restaurant. Uh, really and then he's just like smiling and takes a big bite of his pizza like oh yeah totally normal thing we all just heard and Amy <laughs> and John are like what the fuck <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's an important note it's going to come back later <laughs> in the story and when asks,
2: AJ is at the batting cages in another beat it the sequence of the batting cages ends with a high ball that he's not prepared for and it hits the bat and I think it's the vibration stings his hand and he drops the bat and his hands are like I was wondering if that's what it must be like if you you're reaching and you, you're you not expecting to get a prick, but you do. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's very, it is a, it is an unforgettable story. Chris tells it. And as you said, Chris, with se- seemingly this not so characteristic talk that Favreau is doing. Yeah. It seems like he's getting excited and maybe there's even like a, is it like a contact high with Christopher? Because Christopher is just about done with that story, <laughs> I think Favreau says, that's one bad motherfucker. <laughs>
0: it's <really funny. laughs> The next scene we get is uh, Chris showing up at the hotel. He's there to see John. Um, I believe John is uh, sleeping. They had a late shoot. He brought him Jersey's best sandwich. I wish he said where he got it. I'd love to give that a go. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, she brings him in. She's alone. She's in a bathrobe. Uh, again, we've talked about. Um, we're kind of seeing her through Chris's gaze. The show does a good job of making her seem very attracted to him. That's clear. And he's talking to her a little bit, and Chris mentions this is, you know, this isn't acceptable where I come from. You know, talking about all this stuff with her and kind of it's it's a bit of a throwaway, but there's a part of Chris that knows that he's in dangerous waters here. And they talk a little bit about his script. She's given his script to read. Can't we need to
1: pause. Uh-oh. Every time we hear anything about Chris's screenplay, this has got to be the worst <laughs> screenplay of all time. It has been mentioned in this scene specifically at the hotel that, uh, oh, God, what his... The character's father, the character Frankie, who's the main character, his father yeah. has developed eye cancer... And has a guide dog. It's like, what the fuck is this movie? Right? (laughs) And God bless her. Yeah, you're right. She's kind of going along, Paul, with just, like, humoring him. Being like, oh, yeah, you know, talking about the arc and whatever the hell. The third act, the second act, you know yeah
0: he has that's all very coded hollywood language for your script sucks right exactly he has a very (laughs)
1: rudimentary understanding of how the screenwriting process works he's entirely basing off a a book called how to write a screenplay in 21 days that he's taken a year on you know it's just you know uh
0: totally out of his element very funny moment where he's like you know should it go blind he's at a crossroads he doesn't know and she's like well that's an expression right should go blind? He's like, well, no, he's actually going blind. Yeah, so he means that literally, which is one of the funniest things I could think of. Writers on The Sopranos have a very fun... uh, I gotta give kudos to Todd Kessler, because you gotta be such a... To know how to convey such bad writing, you gotta be a very good writer. Oh, yeah. And Kessler just... That is such a fucking hilarious moment when she just looks at him like, oh, yeah. Because she, I mean, this is her job. She's a development girl. She reads scripts all day. So, you know, she she knows this sucks. And she's, but she's still, like, into him and knows that John is interested in working with him a little more. But then they sit. They get very close to each other. She's going over the hierarchy of human needs. The lesson Christopher needs at a minimum if he's going to continue writing. And uh, they're getting closer. He's tucking hair behind her ear. And it's, this is really when... Things explode between them. She uh, fucking attacks him. She <laughs> had, This is like, you know, maybe a week or two of pent-up energy. Uh, she just pins him down and goes for it. And we're off. Chris is now in this situation. And this is his uh, cousin Gregory's fiancé, by the way, which they realize later on in their next hotel scene. But yeah, any last thoughts on this before I move on? I think only that
1: in the casting, Alicia Witt, I mean, we're not just... Um... It's not just a totally different lifestyle type of woman than Adriana. She also, it's the complete opposite look, right? This is not a woman who looks Mediterranean in any way, right? This is a woman I think of of Jewish uh, ancestry, right? She's got red hair, pale skin. It's a totally other kind of girl than Adriana. So uh, it's physically there too. It's not just like mob life versus Hollywood life. It's also just like a totally different looking girl from a totally different tribe, right? It's not another Italian, right?
0: This is is something else. Mm Mm-hmm. So this scene happens, then we get the Livia scene, which we talked about, and then we come back to Chris, and he's in a hotel room with Favreau, finally. It looks like it's a, a nighttime hangout. The first thing we see is Chris blows a, does a line, and <laughs> Favreau says, guess I won't order espresso. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris does, by the way, I mean, Michael Imperioli is a master actor, but his coked out acting here is very good. <laughs> he's he's just so like energetic and giving it an extra 10%. You know what? Uh, really? Uh,
1: I know it's Jon Favreau playing Jon Favreau, but really bad form by the character Jon Favreau in this scene. This is Cusimano all over again, right? This oh, yeah. is the dancing bear. Yeah. Right? Hey, are you strapped? Strapped. <laughs> you know, did you ever, he's about to ask him, did you ever whack somebody? And Chris knows it and he can't wait to tell him. But also... can answer if you don't ask. Yeah. That realization will not come during the scene because of the coke, but it is the same thing. It's exploitation, yeah. ultimately. This is a disguised friendship. It's not really. It's just... They're using you. They're parasites, just like the Cousamanos are parasites. Yeah, you know, or or Kusumano's Country Club friends. But that moment where the scene switches over from that playfulness to actually genuine terror on Favreau's part—that somehow this, this gun, gun. is going to go off, or yeah, something's yeah, yeah. going to happen to me—that symbolically is just so meaningful in terms of like, oh, I forgot. I, John Favreau, for like a moment, was like. Oh, I forgot this guy's like a real killer. Like I, I, could die in this moment. What am I doing? I'm here with a gangster, and he's doing coke, and he's waving a gun around. Oh shit! Yeah, you know, that's a good moment, you know.
0: Yeah, no. And I love the. I have to quote Chris here. This is not necessarily how I would categorize it, but the pussy assness of his excuse when he breaks up the fight. You yeah, know, I got dialogue tomorrow, and my throat. You know, like <laughs> that's such a that's such a quote pussy ass thing for an actor to say. They're 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 making fun of actors at the same time. It's great. I love it. Then they talk more about Chris's script. I like that he asks, "So what do you think of my script?" He asks him right out, and <laughs> so you know, Frankie. Yeah, I know Frankie. He's my leading fucking man. Well, he's kind of a contradictory character. Pause. In a good way. <laughs> and uh, God, this is this this moment is just electric. Where he tries to give him advice. You know, the script, all scripts, really. <laughs> it, it, it begs to hear more of your life your experiences when he wants the author in it he wants the real deal hollywood needs the real stuff in order to make interesting drama and can you imagine this character frankie actually walking around with fucking taps on his shoes that's his character trademark can you unbelievable <laughs> chris thinks that's probably very cool when he thought of that like the, the, that's his trademark the roof is soft tar <laughs> <laughs> the roof is soft tar this is such good writing and acting combined that, that Favreau tried to impart some real advice and then it's just like well we're, look we're all creatives we've all been in that situation where it's like okay so we're going with the bad idea how can we make the bad idea as good as possible <laughs> so he's just like yeah yeah And then his, his dad can go blind sooner and so that he smells the tar on the shoes <laughs> which he has to whack his old man put one in his old man's head blam and another one blam <laughs> Chris kills it here again. I call this cocaine acting. It's something I've done before. It's hard, but it's very fun, and <laughs> kisses him. Fucking brilliant. God, it's just so fucking funny. I love that. What a horrible idea. But it's also the. I I guess if you're gonna do a scene where the character, um, walks around in tap shoes and and the roof is soft tar, I guess John Favreau's uh, adjustment. Is the best you're gonna do with that. Mm-hmm. So you know he got uh, Chris got a little something from Hollywood in in his script, which is nice.
2: Right. get Well, it's a totally as <laughs> as Jordan was saying earlier. There's something sort of I don't know. It's just all these thoughts and ideas and things you can't hold in your hand. But they have to give Chris something yeah. because they want something from him. So you have to do this. You have to have somebody gave. Oh, they gave it an official read. You know, mm. and we have these ideas for you. They're just, but they're just throwing him bones here mm-hmm. so that they can keep him there as
0: long as they're comfortable with it. Yep, and Favreau, of course, has the presence of mind to wipe his fingerprints off the gun. That's a little bit of action he's doing. I liked that. I noticed it. That was good. Yeah, and then we find out that while he's getting coked up with John Favreau, he's running late for a double date dinner with Tony Carmella. And Adriana's there, and uh, she's sweet as ever. They're having a nice dinner. This would have been a lovely night had Chris's uh, mind not been elsewhere and had he not been coked out of his skull. Yeah,
1: horrible scene for Adriana. So embarrassing. Yeah, everyone's Um, in a
0: good mood, and and it seems like it was going to be a nice dinner, and then Chris shows up, and it's like an alien life form sitting at the table. Yeah. His brain is just nowhere near... Right. Yeah, terrible. He dumps his wine
1: in the soup there. Disgusting. Adriana blurts out about the screenplay. Camera zooms in on Tony's face. What'd you say?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yep. Absurdity. It's very much yeah. like AJ ends up revealing a bunch of shit to Livia in the first season. Yeah. Here it just comes up. Tony didn't know about the screenplay. Mm-hmm. We also, important to note for later,
0: that a- Adriana is... We get the sense that she's at the point in this relationship where she's waiting for a proposal or some kind of. Yeah, it's been three years. What's going on? Higher sign yeah. of commitment. I had a. Uh, I won't tell this story until we have Lily back on the show. But I actually have a, a similar, an interesting story, personal story on that note. But um, yeah, Chris says fuck the importance. Uh, pours the wine in, and then the next thing Chris does is he meets back up with Amy. We have that elevator scene. Just showing that they're still going. They're in a passionate affair at this point for for all intents and purposes. And back at the hotel
1: room, uh, post-CODIS, they are sort of enamored with each other. Mm. It almost seems like love in that moment. He's asking her about her family. You know, she asks him if he'd ever been intimate with a member of the tribe before, quote-unquote. Tribe meaning Jewish folks. And for that brief moment, until he asks her if she's ever been with another quote-unquote skinny
0: guinea,
1: (laughs) uh, it almost works. Yeah. And then the illusion is broken. Yeah. Right? As soon as, you know, uh, her guilt comes up, how are we ever going to tell him? She goes to the bathroom, uh, looks at herself in the mirror, really has a moment of reflection, realizes this is not a thing. Right? Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, he discovers the screenplay for Crazy Joe.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. He starts reading it and he's enamored with it. I, I gotta tell you, just a little note of colour here before we get back to the story, uh, a film about Crazy Joe Gallo by Favreau is something I would see. I- oh, yeah. I'm kinda sad that it's not a real thing. At but... the time he
2: at that time he could have played it too.
0: Yeah. 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 In spite of what Chris says <laughs> Vince Vaughn or something.
2: <laughs> yeah. Vince Vaughn, maybe.
0: I, you know what, I like Vince Vaughn, but I would actually
2: much rather see that film with John Favreau as Joe Gallo. At the um, end of this scene where they end up arguing over everything with the script. You can't use this, this whole thing. Uh, Amy has this line, it is so absurd of you to get bent out of shape like this. Absurd. Yeah. Yeah, and so that absurdity comes back, which is true, but I guess it's true because they're all absurd in some way. Chris, interestingly, he's looking out, I guess, possibly for his own career, his own safety, because as he said, this is not acceptable to reveal these kinds of things. Yeah. But the betrayal of Adriana and his cousin Gregory, eh, yeah,
1: you know, so Right, that's one thing, but it wasn't the code that he betrayed, right? right. Now the code right. is in question. So uh, right,
2: and the and the code again, what is the code and where are you with the code? Again, because he's been pulling away here and so I think that is a nice way to filter into how this episode's going to lead him back.
1: Oh, I I agree. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, Chris, for a moment, he he really actually, I think, realizes how badly he's fucked up. He's mm. give, he's First of all, he's given them another wise guy story, and that guy's still, like, around. Yeah. You know, that's not, like, a gangster long past. Like, that's a that's someone he knows mm-hmm. that if they ever saw this movie, they'd be like, wait a second. Yeah. Um. So that's a big no-no. But then also, and this sucks, this made me sad, he gave them a real artifact. Yeah. Like, this is a real story. This is something about me. He didn't imagine they were going to use that. He was just sharing... Something of his life, of what he knew, that uh, woman happened to walk in, he was able to tell them that story. They've turned it into a trifle, right? right. It's just set dressing in that screenplay. That's not going to be a major plot point. That's just something to lend it the air of authenticity, which is Chris's life.
0: And he didn't have the thought or foresight or, or insight to use something like that for his own Sure. Script. Well, it's the moment he's he's that the guy I think perhaps he feel like,
1: oh, I, I'm being used. Yeah, exactly. You
0: know? Oh, and that's absolutely how he feels. And he's mad about it, understandably. You know, there's a big risk of exposure here. The odds that Amy's going to go back and tell Gregory about this couple of days, very slim. But if this gets made into a major motion picture by John Favreau, you know, that story's out there. And Chris knows that that's bad news. So he's he's fired up. He's hunting Favreau down. We get a couple of scenes in a row. He's screaming. He's banging on the hotel door. He finds out John's not there. He goes to the set, gets rebuked by security. Uh, <laughs> Sees Garofalo one more time. Hey, Pukyak, yeah, <laughs> You know, here first Or her.
2: um, She also wants more of his authenticity. Right. Give me more of that stuff. He, he, yeah. he yeah. calls
0: him a, quote, motherfucking cocksucking metzaphanouk, which is a great phrase. But, um... She's just like, wow, you got any more of that stuff I can use? That's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very actor of her. Janine Garofalo does a nice job in her cameo here.
1: Now at this point, The Sopranos is already a cultural phenomenon, right? Yeah. So there's, like, no way in hell people like Jon Favreau, Sandra Bernhardt, Janine Garofalo, like, they're probably excited to do a Sopranos episode, right? Hell yeah. I would think.
0: Oh, you gotta be. Mm. Yep. I'm just trying to think of it, like, from the other side of, like, legitimate Hollywood side, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then we get all the stuff uh, with uh, we get that big fight with Pussy and Angie and come back and Amy is sitting there waiting for some kind of agent meeting uh, for some kind of meeting with an agent and Chris barges in. What the fuck? You don't return my calls. He's making a scene. They have this fight. She gives him this bullshit line about Mickey Blue Eyes. Oh my god, it's uh, so funny. You know, foreign right? The opposite of what
1: she had told him earlier in the episode, which was that mafia stories were always hot. Well, now suddenly they're not.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So she had this line of bullshit ready. I love Chris when he looks up at her. You're good. Fucking walnuts don't lie as good as you. That she is, you know, a prolific liar. And that is the perception of people in Hollywood like this. That they're full of shit. That they always have a reason to to be fake.
1: The series of shots here is framed beautifully as well. Because he's stuck at the bottom. She's Mm -hmm. about to go up to the stairs in the big golden office. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, I really like you. Yeah. He tells her, right? Something genuine. She tells him it was never going to work. You know, that their worlds can never be. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it speaks to this fake, awful flakiness, the ephemeral nature of Hollywood, and, you know, just better that she goes back off into the ivory tower and leaves him down there. Mm -hmm. You know?
2: Yeah. The opening uh, shot of the scene also nicely, um, it's her reading variety. It's the exact same composition of the shot where Pussy is reading Waste News Mm. as he waits for Uh Tony and AJ to arrive. So I thought to myself, it's all the same same self-serving garbage wow um that's a hell of a pickup
0: Paul. that's excellent and calling someone a d girl apparently a slur that is not something well, yeah, yeah. Not cool so Dang. she is a development girl you know and uh i suppose a d girl it's not a very flattering way to be referred to as somebody who is a vice president you fucking asshole but you know it's it's all he's got it's the last bit of Last bit of last arrow in his in his quiver, it's it hits, yeah. Oh, and he does, had yeah. to
1: search for something that would hurt her, right? Mm-hmm. If you called her Bukiak, wouldn't matter, yeah, 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 that wouldn't hurt her, yeah. You're a D girl,
0: yep, that's what you are because it, it, it strikes at her status and her phony sense of, of you know, self importance. And that, that that's that's how Chris's relationship with Hollywood ends up, he's at the bottom of the stairs, he can't get access. It was wrong between us, she says specifically.
1: And that whole sequence where he's looking for Favreau and he's looking for her, that is every common man's experience when you suddenly have your first flirtation with the Hollywood folks, right? It's just like, you called, but they didn't answer. The person you spoke to wasn't actually the person you spoke to. That person that was supposed to be in that room, they're not there,
0: right? Mm-hmm. That's Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We'll, he says we'll be I, in touch.
1: A... We'll do lunch. Are you ever going to be in touch? Are you going to do lunch? No.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says to her in that scene, uh, "What the fuck? I called him. I talked to some jerk off assistant." And she has the, I see. I wouldn't even know who that is. Who that person would be? That assistant. Just so many different levels of bullshit to blow people off. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I have my own frustrations on this subject, but I'm not going to get into it. There are, but you know, Hollywood is known for its its gatekeepers. It's bullshit. It's it's all these you know layers and layers because everyone wants to be a star. Everyone wants to be a player. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an insulated community that a lot of people want to get in on. And Chris was not prepared to navigate it and uh, was not expecting just how shitty it is. And uh, he, got a, he got a lesson. He got a lesson, certainly, on that. So we're going to get finally to the conclusion of this great episode at the uh, confirmation party. A lot of things are going to happen. Let's go through it here. Uh, everyone's showing up. I, we see Richie, Richie, and Janice shows up. By the way, Janice dressed like a total Jersey yuppie. All of a sudden, it's already a big change from when she first flew in from Seattle. All hippy-dippy with the... Yeah, and this seems to be uh, the
1: manner in which she's dressed and showing up with Richie. And she introduces herself as Janice for the first time. This Parvati nonsense has kind of gone away.
0: Yeah, yeah. No Parvati. She she introduces herself as Janice emphatically. They make a point of it. Right. And, of course, Tony... You know, we've talked about this. Obviously, Richie's a scumbag. But, like, Tony just can't resist a, a, a taking a shot at this guy any chance <laughs> he gets. It. Oh, and we count the silverware. Tells him Richie <laughs> just kind of gives him a... Like a, a smile that says, yeah, nice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> muttering, probably muttering under his breath as soon as he gets out of Tony's ice, eyesight. And then, uh, yeah, we get, um who is it? I think Puss asks Tony, oh, Janice now? And Tony just says, I don't know. <laughs> like he can't he can't keep up with it Pussy wearing a wire as we've seen uh Angie does a nice job of faking that There, everything is fine Tony is like hey were you were you proud of him uh up there and she's like oh yeah where's Carm going to go, whisks away to the other room and uh Puss asks him about Wise Chuck. This is uh, and Tony. We see that Tony is a great, um, a great mob boss. For this reason, he's very good. Hey, no, f- no, no, friend of mine, no neighbor of mine, or whatever. He's, he gives us some kind of line like that. Non-committal. Oh, you know, our, our neighbor Wise Chuck. No neighbor of mine. Yeah. Which, you know, perfect, non-committal, vague. Definitely not helping the feds any there. And uh, we get the scene of uh, AJ smoking weed in the garage, getting high at his own confirmation. Good for him. Fuck those events. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, uh, <laughs> might not be yeah, the best judge of this. <laughs> I think
0: all of us here uh, can probably say that, uh, you know, I, I might even even need a little weed to get through a yeah. party, party like that. A big party like that where you have to be like, shoved in front of all these people you don't really
1: like and you want to go smoke with your two friends in the garage, fine. Yeah, yeah. you, know. but, you know, I mean, that's... not fine for Tony and Carmella, of course, but I understand, AJ, yeah. sure.
0: It's it's It's... It's a, it was a weird time. I mean, first of all, it's the Catholic thing. And also society was in a different place on, on this, even on marijuana, even 20 years ago. You know, we've shifted 20 year The 20-year census of Sopranos has kind of seen the shift where a majority of the country has shifted from anti to pro marijuana legalization. So there's a cultural thing here. It is a cultural thing. I also couldn't help but notice
1: in every shot, everyone from Pussy to Tony, they're all drinking alcohol freely to get through this event. Hmm. AJ can't drink alcohol. He's smoking some weed in the garage. So really, so different. Really, you know.
0: It could be worse. But they scold him, tell him, you know, go upstairs be the guest, be a good Catholic for fifteen fucking minutes. Is that <laughs> so much to ask in this family? It is. It is. It is. <laughs> Nobody in this family is a good Catholic. You out of your mind? Anyway, we have a lovely scene here between Pussy and AJ, where you know Puss goes up and and talks to him about his uh, this. He's forced to reminisce in order to. Be an uncle to AJ. And he talks about this his kid sister Nucci, who had the spinal meningitis and had trouble breathing, and pussy was waiting in line for a sandwich or something downstairs. Tony was with him every day at the hospital. And it makes pussy kind of wistful and sad because he's forced to reconcile with the fact that Tony, in addition to being a colleague of his in the mob, has also been a good friend. And it makes him upset. I feel for Pussy in this moment. I think he does a great... This is the first time someone actually does a good job with AJ in this episode. And uh, he gives him a hug. And it's, it's really upsetting, too, when they cut to the FBI van. Because this is an intimate moment. It's like, yeah, am I mad that the feds might have some tape on somebody in the mob committing crimes? No, I'm not mad about that. But this is a personal moment that, you know, the feds really shouldn't be listening to. Yep. And I felt, I felt bad about that. Any thoughts on this last scene here with AJ and Pussy?
1: I think Pussy's relationship with AJ is interesting because it's almost like what you would want your relationship with your godfather to be like. This is someone who's supposed to be like a counselor and a guide for you. And he's actually performing that function really well. So, you know, perhaps for the first time... Uh, I, I don't know if it's the first time on the show, in the episode, whatever... Uh, someone is behaving in the Catholic manner like that that role is supposed to perform. like That's that's the way to do it, to be a godfather. You're, you're bringing that child back to God. Mm. AJ's temporarily lost his way in this moment, mm. and you're putting him back on the right track. Pussy's able to do that. He's not able to do it for himself.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm. I th- It's a terrific scene. As I say, Vincent Pastor really steps it up here. He makes yeah. the whole last part of this episode... Uh, really powerful I got the sense when he was telling the story about his kid sister Nucci that he hadn't thought about it in a while Yeah, yeah. and that bringing it back makes him realize in some way all over again that Tony is and has been to him a stand up guy and so he's got to make AJ understand AJ he uses says, these,
0: these phrases I know what kind of man he is he's a stand up guy right. and Pussy's of course in this situation forced to reflect on the fact that those are not phrases that
2: describe him Right, and AJ says to him, I don't know, not to me, he's not. Well, I do know, and I understand him. You know, he'd catch a bullet for you. And so, yeah, as you say, he's betraying this stand-up guy. So as he hugs AJ, it's all very moving and powerful, but I also felt that, not that I ever want Livia to be right, but it, but Pussy has to live with that, the fact that he's the embodiment of people will let you down. Mm-hmm. Your best friend will let you down.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's really rough. And look Tony has many faults. He's not a good person. There's, you know, the whole show is a demonstration of the complexity and the faults of Tony Soprano, but Tony would never do this. I I you know, Tony would take the 30 years in prison over being wearing a wire. I just don't think he would ever do it. I agree. And um, pussy, he'd made the choice. He he couldn't do the time and he's struck right in the fucking head with this reality that he's been avoiding the first half of the season he's really not there's been a cognitive disconnect he's been lying 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 and just kind of avoiding it and here it is it hits him square in the fucking mouth and uh yeah so chris arrives at the party adriana walks away he hands tony an envelope and tony gives him a very very clear ultimatum here i love the way he words this to chris He's, he's very calm. He's not yelling at him. He's saying, listen, you know, uh, exactly 10 minutes I'm going to look up, and if you're not here, I'm going to assume you went to look for whatever the fuck it is that's calling you out there, and that I will never see you again. And if you are here, I'm going to assume that you had no other desire in the world but to be with me, and your actions will show it at every fucking second of every fucking day. Great writing. Well said. And it really puts Chris on the spot for a confirmation party this is what i like to refer to as a come to jesus moment and it's especially heartbreaking because he's given an out tony yeah. gives him an out here
1: well that's what confirmation is right it's a rededication right we have all these characters doing that we have aj doing it in the literal catholic sense rededicating himself to god right hoping that that will be the case right uh we have a pussy having a conflict over a sense of rededication whose man is he is mm. he the government's man is he tony's man he really can't be his own man anymore Chris is, you know, dealing with issues of confirmation am I, am I to be confirmed in this life? Am I staying here? He actually, like, there's not like an instant, like, Tony, I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, of course I'm here. He goes outside and
2: he thinks about it. Mm-hmm. Smokes a cigarette. I think the rededication portion is very important. I think it's important that these are two, again, son figures. His biological son and the gangster son. And Tony's son, AJ, has been in a lost mode. In this episode, and partway through this episode, in the scene at the restaurant, Tony finds out that his surrogate son is pulling away in this other direction. Earlier in the episode, talking about AJ, Tony admits to Big Pussy, It gets so I don't even want to be around him. I don't want to spend time with him. I don't want to be with him. He says to Chris, If I look up and you are here, then I will take that to mean that you have no other desire than to be with me. The terms of gangster life are tough. The terms of gangster love are desperate. And in spite of the idea that Melfi shared, what the existentialists believe, there are no absolute truths. Tony has been brought to a place in this episode where love and loyalty must be absolute. Mm. There is no other option. That's so well said. So, And then when Chris, when Chris goes outside, Chris is a smoker, which I am. Don't smoke um listeners <laughs> but he he smokes a couple times in this episode one guy at the soho grand tells him he's got to put the cigarette out he goes outside and plays with the cigarette he doesn't smoke it mm. and when he goes back inside he just puts it in his pocket oh good catch i was wondering if that, that suggested how seriously he does like he really thinks about this as you said jordan he really as tony suggests takes the 10 minutes yeah right
0: mm. so and we get this heartbreaking final moment here where both of these guys are stuck, Pussy and Chris, in their own ways. And Pussy is crying in the bathroom, very tough to watch, because this guy is like the stalwart of gangster masculinity up to this point. And uh, he's just lost it. He's sobbing in the bathroom uncontrollably as the feds listen in. Really feel for him there. And I also feel for Chris, who is, for all intents and purposes, as far as we the audience know, he's closing the door on this desire, this whatever's calling him, it's a sad and sobering last moment in an episode that was full of a lot of laughter and mirth, but also some serious, absurd, nihilistic discoveries and feelings. Final thoughts on D-Girl, guys? Any last uh, moments you want to talk about? Things we missed? Final words? In revisiting the episode, which is one of my favorites, it still
1: remains one of my favorites, I realize now that it it was a lot less fun than i remembered it being but i'm really 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 okay with that because it's actually a really rich episode and that that sense of hopelessness is actually enjoyable to ruminate on uh in this episode because the perspectives are good the comparisons are good the metaphors are good and it's quite sharply done ultimately i think when we do our like season retrospective at the end uh d girl's going to come up for me again as either the favorite or one of the favorites just because i think it's particularly strong in its commentary on the meaning of existence, the meaning of what is concrete and what is ephemeral, and uh, how it relates back to life, that we we essentially have to give it meaning, meaning by, by dedicating ourselves to something.
2: Mm. To just piggyback on that briefly, there's so many things that The Sopranos does well in terms of storytelling, and maybe helping to hammer the point home that This ending dealt with a lot of serious themes. Once again, their game in terms of soundtrack is on point. The last sequence juxtaposing Chris and Big Pussy and their own devotions and loyalties and loves, this song by a French soprano named Emma Chaplin called Vedi Maria plays. Basically a song, it's like in the form of a prayer about a person who is trapped by love and duty. They can't live with their love, it's... Costing them too much, but they're afraid to let it go. Mm. Um, and I just once again, the soundtrack really boosting the mood here to great effect. There's a reason music on The Sopranos is one of the categories we talk about in our retrospective,
0: because it's such an important element to the show. David Chase, I believe, picks hand picks every piece of music that hits the screen, so it's a big part of the show, and they use it in very good effect. Paul, very good on that. And with that, that's going to wrap us up on D-Girl. We're having a great time. We're, we're past the midway at this point in Season 2. Things are cooking. And um, next episode, we have Full Leather Jacket. It's probably the shortest Sopranos episode, but it doesn't lack an impact. I'll say that much. We're looking forward to talking about it with you. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And you're a fucking D-Girl. We'll see you next time. I got myself a Bye.